all of us get frustrated. Even coaches sometimes get frustrated and ask yourself, you know, when you've had a particularly bad day or bad week and you say, you know, why am I trying to help? When I, whenever I feel like that, Mark, I take a walk through the emergency department of whatever facility I happen to be in at the time. And I walk through that facility and I see the old and the weak. I see the young people who've been struck down by sudden onset of illness or some kind of accident, their lives perhaps changed forever. And then I realize how important this work that we're trying to do in healthcare actually is. Someday that could be somebody in our family. Someday that could be us. And there's nothing, there's no more noble calling in my imagination anyway, than supporting grand change in the way we deliver healthcare. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 307 of the podcast. It's April 30th, 2018. My guest today is the voice you heard at the beginning of the episode, Andre Demarchant. He is the president of Demarchant Healthcare Solutions, Inc., which is based in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Andre and I first crossed paths when we had the chance to work together at an American healthcare client via our then affiliation with Pascal Dennis and Lean Pathways. I've interviewed Pascal on the podcast here many times, of course. So in today's episode, Andre and I talk about, we start off talking about his history working for Toyota in Canada and what he learned there, why it's important that he learned about how flow works while working there. We'll talk a little bit about lean and the Toyota production system and what those words or phrases mean to him. How does TPS transcend culture and language as well as industries? And then we shift to talking about healthcare and some of the common challenges that are faced, uh, including financial hardships, um, the things, problems we see in many countries. Why are hospitals poorly prepared for change in many cases? And um, why do they struggle in addressing that? Another main theme is cost cutting and why you can't cut your way to success. I hope you enjoy the episode. You can find links and more information at leanblog.org slash 307. Andre, hi. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Mark. It's, uh, it's a pleasure being here with you today. Yeah, well, it's great talking to you. And you know, before we dive into you know, sort of, uh, you know, topics of, of healthcare and improvement and, and organizational change, you always like to ask guests to you know, start off, if, if you don't mind, introducing yourself and, and your background and, and maybe kind of weave into that where you first got introduced uh, to Lean. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Mark, you you and I have known each other for a little while. I'm Andre Demarchant. Uh, my background in Lean is actually from Toyota, what you would probably consider one of the A-rank practitioners of Lean in the marketplace. And, uh, you know, when I joined Toyota quite a number of years ago, it, it wasn't called Lean back then. Mm -hmm. It was the Toyota production system. And I didn't actually know it was called Lean until I had left Toyota and uh, started working on my own. And then I realized, oh, my God, Lean and Toyota production system are the same thing when you get out into the real world. So, you know, I spent 16 years at Toyota, and it was a very interesting evolution for me because uh, it was a greenfield site. It had uh, just recently been constructed. I was among the first batch of uh, employees hired to this greenfield site. 
And so when we got into the facility, it was just basically a shell. It had walls, it had a, a roof, but a lot of the equipment wasn't installed at that point. So myself, you know, and the others that were hired in the same at the same time, we worked side by side with the Japanese senseis setting up the systems, installing the equipment, and kind of really understanding how flow works from the ground up because I was just hired as a as a team member. I wasn't hired as a member of management at that time. I worked my way through the ranks at uh, at Toyota, I became manager of stamping ultimately and uh, through the course of that that career spent uh, a lot of time in Japan, had many visits to Japan for new model projects and, and additional Toyota production system training. And it was an exceptional experience, Mark, because I got to see the TPS philosophy, the thinking, the tools applied at different levels in the organization and at different times of growth. You know, starting out as a greenfield site that made 50,000 cars a year to one that would ultimately make, you know, 1,200 cars per shift. I mean, it, it changes it changes the dynamic of how TPS works. And it was interesting to see how we were all taught the Toyota production system, too, because you have to understand Toyota at the time um, brought in people who were not from an automotive background. And so, you know, I came to Toyota from a meatpacking company where I was a lead hand in a meatpacking company. So no car building experience whatsoever, no exposure to Toyota production system. And so it was interesting to, to experience at the time. And I don't think I had a full appreciation at the time of uh, what it was I was going through and, and learning all of this Toyota production system uh, nuance. I left Toyota ultimately to become operations manager and the uh, TPS transformation coach for a small engineering company outside of Detroit, Michigan, uh, where we were quite successful. It was very, very tiny. You know, I went from a 4,500-member Toyota plant to a 100-member engineering company. Mm. And I was, uh, it was quite interesting to, to see the difference and, and, of course, to take some of what I'd learned and try and apply it into this, uh, not only a different kind of business because we were engineering automation tooling, but also the, the small size and the intimacy that you get with a small size organization like that. At the end of that tenure, when we were able to accomplish what we needed to do, of course, I started my own consulting company. I worked with my own clients as well as doing some uh, contract work for uh, other consulting organizations. And basically over the last you know, three decades, I've been applying my TPS thinking and tools to all kinds of different industries, general manufacturing, furniture making, agriculture, service, aerospace. And of course, uh, on several continents too. I spent quite a bit of time in Europe and a little bit of time in Central America as well. So it's interesting, again, you know, I use the term interesting a lot, but it's fascinating that uh, you can see that TPS actually works in many countries and it spans, it really transcends many cultures. It's just a matter of translating it so that it makes sense to the people that you're talking to. Yeah, yeah. And going going back a couple of follow-up um, questions. So the, the plant you're talking about is uh, Cambridge, Ontario, correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's the Toyota Motor Manufacturing uh, plant in Cambridge, Ontario. You know, when I first started there, we were just making the Corolla. Then it was the Corolla and the Matrix, the station wagon, which, of course, Toyota no longer makes. And then they introduced the Lexus mm-hmm. to that plant. And that's the first time the Lexus was built outside of Japan. So we were pretty proud of that accomplishment to be able to to get that work. Yeah. And, and that plant is uh, still open and, and producing and, and, and successful today, right? Oh, yeah. It's uh, absolutely thriving. And it has a sister plant now about 45 minutes down the road in Woodstock, Ontario, that uh, makes the RAV4. 
And so a lot of what we learned there and a lot of the good people that grew up in the organization when I was there went on to help establish a new plant at another Greenfield site just a little bit down the highway. Yeah, and if, if I have the timeline right, I mean, you know, I, I've talked to people on the podcast here uh, about Numi, you know, which was uh, Toyota's, um, you know, kind of first toe in, 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 in the water, if you will, working with General Motors in um, California, yeah. which which it's a whole different podcast. Maybe I'll get to have with somebody someday. That's now the Tesla factory uh, yes, in Fremont, California, and or at least it shares the walls. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> I don't know if it shares the mindset, but we don't, that's a different, that's a different discussion. But, um, but then they uh, opened their own uh, plant in, in Georgetown, Kentucky, and then Cambridge followed uh, not too long after that. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, that's correct. Georgetown was first. We were just, uh, I believe, a couple of years after that. And uh, then I believe it was uh, Indiana and Texas. And I can't remember if there was an engineering facility somewhere in there as well. But uh, Toyota expanded you know, fairly rapidly through the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think Toyota was learning, um, you know, the, the, the point you made not long ago that that lean and TPS transcend industries and transcend cultures and you know you occasionally you still hear people say things like oh well this would be easy if we were japanese and you know from i'm curious your thoughts on that i hear a chuckle you know from my um you know handful of trips to japan trips to japan that seems not to be true that toyota and companies like them have have worked really hard to create um, a culture that's not exactly the same as uh, japanese business culture and there are you know, American influences and, and other influences. And can, could you sort of elaborate on, on this idea of, you know, maybe why people are skeptical about how TPS and Lean translate? What, what, what do you see happening? Well, you know, you're right, Mark. People are skeptical when you first start talking to them about what Lean or what TPS can do for them in their business. And a lot of it is because of the association with the Japanese culture. They think it's something that will only work in a very structured environment like Japan. And and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that as we teach TPS, it comes with a lot of embedded Japanese words in it. And so people look at that and say, well, this is something specifically for Japan, when in, in fact it's not. And when you think about Toyota, you know, they've got... 51 different manufacturing facilities in 28 different countries around the world. And, you know, as a member of Toyota, I got to travel to quite a few of them, obviously not all of them, but quite a few of them. And while the cultures are different, the application of the Toyota production system was very, very consistent. I mean, it was tailored for the culture. You know, you have to consider Toyota production system kind of like buying a really good suit. At the end of the day, everybody that you're looking at is wearing a suit, but it's custom fit to them. And Toyota Mm. production system is very much the same way. At the end of the day, when you go back and think, well, what philosophically, what is the TPS system trying to teach us? It's exactly the same, but you can tailor it to be the, to match the different cultures. So I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, or at least there certainly used to be about uh, TPS working exclusively in Japanese are very, very structured cultures. I mean, the fact that we have very successful Toyota plants in North America, in continental U.S., by itself would uh, indicate that that's not true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there there is plenty of evidence at this point that Toyota has figured out how to 
um, uh, be successful in, in other countries. They've been successful uh, in, in Texas, you know, with their San Antonio plant that's been open uh, just over 10 years, which has been great for the San Antonio area. Absolutely. Um, you know, they're, they're becoming more of a global uh, company. And, you know, they, maybe we can talk more about, you know, kind of translations across industries and, and, and talk about healthcare. But before we, before we move into that, I'm, I'm curious maybe to follow up on, on um, a couple of other things. So, you know, you, you made a comment about, you know, you left Toyota and learned that uh, TPS and Lean were the same thing. And, and, and there's, you know, some who I've, I've heard sort of take issue with that, that, oh, that lean is, you know, sort of a uh, interpretation of TPS. And there's some people out, you know, who, who talk a lot about TPS and lean being different. And, you know, I think part of the challenge I see, and I'll, you know, hear your reactions to this is that, you know, I think there are a lot of things that get said in the name of lean that to me don't seem to hold very close to TPS. So it seems like over time there's been, um, uh, you know, sort of a variation or drift or I don't know whatever term you would, you would use. But um, maybe to ask you, you know, kind of react to that or elaborate on that. I mean, you know, TPS and Lean should be the same thing in, in principle or how, how, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I it. I guess just coming from me, Mark, you know, when I say lean or TPS, they mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know if it's because of my background from a lean practitioner point of view, you know, I learned at an A rank practitioner, which is Toyota right? Um, right. or not. I, I don't know if that's influencing the way I look at it or not. I think you can oh, very sure easily, yeah. I think you can very easily get tied up in semantics. And I think you can also get tied up um, looking at exclusivity. So what I mean by that is, is uh, you know, the Toyota production system or lean, you know, tends to breed a, a, a great large batch of uh, consultants and coaches. And of course, the way you differentiate yourself is to call what you're doing something a little bit different mm, mm -hmm. than what the original is, right? And And so, you know, you could think of it even from a, from an element of lean, which is a uh, TPM, you know, total productive maintenance. And so the way we were taught TPM at Toyota, there's five pillars, but you can go online and you can find uh, coaches who will teach you seven pillars and nine pillars and six pillars. And at the end of the day, it's all the same TPM. It's just all marketed a little bit different. So I think, I think that uh, certainly in my imagination, lean and TPS are the same thing. I think mm -hmm. that that's not uni universally true. I think there are people who do believe that those things are different. I also think that the more people who practice it who have not had experience at an A-rank practitioner also potentially can dilute some of the meaning uh, mm -hmm. of what it's intended to be. So I think there's certainly some risk to that as well. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the, the one thing that, um, you know, there, there are, uh, you know, there's variation that, is maybe inconsequential and then there are you know the, the one thing i always you know, it's just kind of uh gets me uh, gets my dander up is you know hearing somebody say I've, I've heard people quite literally stand on a stage that and say you know lean is all about efficiency and you you better use six sigma for quality <laughs> because otherwise lean would have you making bad stuff faster and it I, 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 wow, like that, that is not my experience. You know, when I was at um, General Motors learning from a, a NUMI trained plant manager who said, 
if quality and efficiency go hand in hand and you know the two pillars of, of TPS on the Toyota website are are flow and, and built-in quality. Um, so I mean there are some fairly wild misunderstandings out there unfortunately. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, if we got to vote and pick one way that we would describe it, I think I would be more in favor of TPS, Mark, and I'll tell you why. It's just because that I think the term lean really misunderstates what uh, the Toyota production system can deliver for you. If you think of TPS, Toyota production system, that's a system. When you think of lean, what you're often thinking about is just a toolbox full of tools. Mm-hmm. And, you know, TPS is all about a management system. It's about the different components that all fit together to drive a better business, including the mental models, the thinking way that's very, very important to make all of that work. And you don't get the same kind of, of mental leverage on lean that way as you do TPS. Mm-hmm. To say TPS really means management system and I think that that's that's a key component that people often don't think about when they just think about the term lean in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you know, I think you know, uh, I mean, I've heard, I remember somebody at a hospital years ago. Maybe we start shifting and talking about uh, hospital healthcare land here. But you know, somebody who said quite literally, like, "Oh, yeah, we're we're already lean. We don't have enough people as it is." And wow, you know, because unfortunately in their mind saying, well, you know, we're running lean means not having enough where I think the intent of um, uh, lean was 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 about uh, effectiveness and doing more with less. But, you know, I but I I hear you that that even that concept alone doesn't seem to really capture the nature of a, a philosophy and a management system. Oh, for sure not. And, you know, the way we were taught lean at Toyota, it, it, you know, the TPS or lean, whatever you want to call it, it's about having what's needed, when it's needed, in the quantity that it's needed. Mm-hmm. And that's not just about parts to build the car. That's about resource. That's about time. It's about everything. And so, you know, obviously you have to understand your business in a really, really intimate way um, in order to make that work for resource as well as parts. But uh, it's not about running shorthanded on anything because that doesn't do a service to anybody that doesn't help quality. And it certainly doesn't help, especially if you're thinking about uh, healthcare, it certainly does not help patient experience. Right. Right. And so I think, you know, there's, there's this tradition in healthcare. um, I would maybe even call it an unhelpful tradition of um, cost cutting where there's, you know, this, this focus on um, slashing, you know, kind of uh, cutting, hours, cutting people, um, shrinking resources and capacity instead of focusing on uh, process improvement, waste reduction, improving flow. I I thought it was, it really struck me how you mentioned, you know, learning TPS, you were taught how flow works. Um, So I was wondering, you know, in that context, you know, what are your thoughts on on some of the major issues that you see uh, healthcare organizations being up against today? Well, you know, certainly the, the clients that I get to visit, um, you know, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of things that are kind of staring them down at this point in time. The first thing is that there is pending change for which they have no countermeasure. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a little bit stunning because change has been coming to healthcare for approximately 15 years, maybe longer, whether we wanted to accept it or not. Um, 
you know, the number of patients that we're seeing, the level of acuity, the increasing uh, age groups, you know, the ALC, uh, while quality ex expectations increase and reimbursement for services continues to decline, these are changes that have been coming for a long time, and a lot of healthcare organizations are just poorly prepared to address those. And, you know, once upon a time, you could rely on higher census, both inpatient and outpatient, to, to be profitable, but now that's no longer a guarantee because reimbursement is different. So I think that, you know, the first part is a lot of health care organizations are, are unprepared for the change that they're facing. They either didn't see it coming or they saw it coming and, and thought they could work around it. I'm, you know, I'm not sure in every circumstance, uh, but that's certainly one, one, uh, one big aspect. Of course, what that leads to is the second big issue that they face, which is then financial hardship. And, you know, not, not being prepared or preparing for the future ultimately leads you to some kind of fiscal judgment day. And, you know, fiscal judgment day, when you think about it, Mark, it's really fixed in time for each organization. And that time isn't the same for each organization, it really depends on the type of uh, healthcare business that they're in. But the bottom line is, the, the things that are common is that the closer that you get to this fiscal judgment day, the fewer options these organizations have at their fingertips to countermeasure the problem, whether they saw the, the bigger problem coming or not. And so what they're left with then is only dramatic action. Mm. And so something that you could have done a small change on, uh, say, a couple of years ago to help um, help uh, mitigate some of these barriers and some of these changes that are coming uh, now becomes uh, a moment of truth where you have to do something very, very big and deliberate. You have to almost use a blunt instrument in order to make yourself successful now because those, it's just waited too long for some good countermeasure to, to take place. and that almost always leaves organizations in a position of staff cuts as an inevitable last resort. It's interesting because I talked oh. to a CEO of a healthcare organization a few months ago. Uh, you know, he contacted me, he was a potential client and so on. In, in the end, he didn't commit. And the reason he didn't commit, and I really, I was kind of stunned by the response. He basically said he didn't want to take any action until he saw exactly what change was coming to healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Oh. And it, and so I, that Chris, that the Am is that crystal ball uh, arriving from Amazon with two day shipping or something? <laughs> like when... Yeah, I, and, well, it's it's wishful thinking, right? Because yeah. by the time you actually see what the change is going to be, it's too late. I mean, the the goal has to be the same as it would be in manufacturing some time ago, is to create a really flexible organization that can meet whatever challenge it is not wait until you see what the challenge is and then just countermeasure that one challenge. That's completely unhelpful. And, you know, I, I, uh, we had a great dialogue back and forth. He's a very smart man. I don't mean to imply that he was not clever, but I just right. couldn't seem to make him understand that waiting until he knew what the problem was was going to be way I, too late yeah. from being able to select from a number of options to be able to countermeasure it. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've, I've heard similar things, you know, sort of an increasing frequency in the last two years um healthcare organizations in the u.s saying well there, there's too much uncertainty right now so we're going to hold off and we're, we're really we're, we're conserving cash until things become less uncertain and i think well we we have another we have congressional elections coming up in 2018 you know i think yep. part of them you know uh you know it's hard to talk uh healthcare either in the u.s or canada without talking about politics and government in different ways, but 
you know, I think after the uh, presidential election in 2016, you know, that uncertainty about the Affordable Care Act and possible repeal or, you know, that created uncertainty. But now, even though that's been stalled, you know, the congressional elections, the next presidential election in 2020, like in, in our system, that uncertainty, that political uncertainty never goes away. There's many other dimensions of uncertainty. So I've, I, you know, I, and like you said, the, you know, the people making these decisions are, uh, are smart, dedicated people, but it leaves me scratching my head about how doing, you know, wait and see doesn't seem like um, a compelling strategy that if, if you start getting better at improvement, um, it seems like that, that increases your capability of dealing with whatever the future throws at you. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, if I think about Toyota, even the plant that I was at uh, here in Cambridge, I think it was around the mid 90s or maybe late 90s, the car market uh, had a big sag. You know, the people just weren't buying new cars. It didn't matter if it was Toyota or who it was. Nobody was buying new cars. And so the volume really dropped. And so what actually happened at the facility at that time is the leadership doubled down on improvement work. They said, well, I've got people now that have some free time, free in quotation marks, as long as they are saving the organization the equivalent of their salary with every day they come in and do improvement work, that's a bonus for us. That's a benefit that we'll be able to cash in when the market picks up, which inevitably it will. And so when you talk to people in healthcare and and they can't see the benefit of doing some kind of improvement work, even in the face of uncertainty, when you probably should be doing it, it, it leaves me with a lot of anxiety because, you know, yourself, Mark, and same as myself and, you know, a handful of other uh, practitioners out there, you want to help, right? This is an important industry and you want right. to help. And, and when you can't get through to people or you can't, can't uh, frame it in a way to help them understand the urgency of the situation and how a change in mindset or a change in business approach can actually help them, it, it's very frustrating. Yeah, and so, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I, I've, I've blogged about, you know, recent years. I uh, mean, you can go back to the financial crisis. Um, you know, the Toyota plant in San Antonio, like others, um, paid employees to uh, go through uh, training and development and to participate in uh, Kaizen, and they, they even paid people um, to, to go do Habitat for Humanity, because even though doing that isn't really directly saving the company money, I, it, you know, I've, I think somebody from the, the San Antonio plant said that it's, it's developing teamwork and leadership skills mm -hmm. to even pay people to do things very unrelated to directly uh, building trucks. And you know, I think that philosophy of developing people, you know, point one of the Toyota way from Jeff Liker is taking the long-term perspective, of course. And absolutely after the um, earthquake and tsunami and everything that hit Japan in uh, was it 2011, I believe, you know, there were stories of, you know, a, a supplier in Japan being a uh, paint supplier being ca pretty catastrophically knocked offline. And they supplied paint to Toyota and General Motors, among others. And, during that time frame, Toyota paid people um, to do all of those things. General Motors, and there were headlines about this, GM was laying people off. And they both companies had about the same amount of money in the bank. Sure. So it, it's not that GM, I don't think GM couldn't, GM couldn't say we can't afford it. It was just, I think it's a difference in 
philosophy and mindset that, that, that was really striking given the different responses to that same scenario. Well, that's absolutely true. And, you know, Mark, when you think about the Toyota production system, one of the foundational pillars of that is respect for people. Mm-hmm. And and so when faced with hardship, you know, it, it's great. And I remember reading stories about the San Antonio plant you know, during that uh, slack period. Yeah, certainly to, to do this type of work, you know, send people out and do things for Habitat for Humanity and, and you know, develop people and leadership skills and so on. That's all great, but Toyota embedded inside of the Toyota production system is a very big social conscience. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's not just about, it's not just about um, building the trucks or building the cars. It's about what does that mean to the society at large? If I do something negatively at my facility, how does it, that impact my community? Right. The Toyota is very community based and very community focused. And, and, so they take a very, very big view of, uh, of the world when things tend to downturn, as opposed to taking, as opposed to trying to um, circle the wagons and say, okay, I'm going to lay a bunch of people off. We're going to save this money and so on. They're more about, okay, if we if we do something like that, what does it mean to the community? How does it impact individual households? How does it impact uh, what the community is able to do? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, even from a tax tax standpoint and so on. So. It, it's it's completely different mindset, you know. But again, foundational in different types of uh, business practice. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I, I see hospitals are are often faced with this exact same choice on a daily basis. Um, it's common enough practice. I'm sure you've run across this and, and maybe tried to talk to people about what what's called flexing, or it's essentially a short term layoff. You know, we have four hours left in our shift and patient census is low and, and some calculation of a ratio says thou shalt send send people home. And you know, I've heard I've heard hospitals say something like, we're forced to send people home. And I'm like, well I I'm pretty sure that's not a matter of law. It's a it's a, it's a choice. It's a tyranny of a spreadsheet sure that says um, send people home early when when I think they clearly have a choice of paying those nurses to participate in improvement work that would be directly meaningful around patient safety, quality and cost. And think about what that does to staff morale when you're not shorting someone's paycheck um, for for a few hours. Um, I'm, I'm curious, what, what are your thoughts on? on, on that? Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I, I'm certainly in agreement with you, Mark, on that one. You know, you see a lot of hospitals do flexing. You know, certainly the ones that uh, I'm involved with do it. You know, to me, I try to look at it as an interim step. Okay, so this is their temporary solution to manage some costs. But, you know, culturally, these organizations are not in the same mental space that a Toyota would be where they would say, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. instead of yeah. instead of having these people leave, I'm going to engage them for four hours, right? And I'm going to take that four hours and I'm going to make improvements because every time I make an improvement in my business, if you're thinking about uh, TPS and I'm making improvement, taking waste out, every time I run that process where I've made the improvement, I'm cashing a check for that. And yeah. so really, I, I'm reaping the benefit of that over a very, very long term. You know, Toyota, again, we, you know, we talk about the slack periods and, and hey, we're going to pay people to come in, make improvements. And as long as you're making improvements the equivalent to or better than about three times of your annual salary, we're going to call that good. And you know what? It was easy to find 
three times your salary worth of stuff to do, like legitimate stuff to do, not not uh, massage number stuff to do. But you know, the healthcare industry hasn't reached that level of maturity where mm-hmm. they're willing to risk on that yet. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's it's mindset and it's capability, I guess, of, you know, who would be helping those nurses, um, coaching them. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point. I mean, I think, you know, when I worked at General Motors in 1995, this was before we got the NUMI plant manager, uh, GM and the other big three automakers with the, the UAW had something called the Jobs Bank, which for one said, you know, if uh, if you're going to uh, try to replace jobs with robots, um, you know, it's, it can't lead to job loss or, you know, uh, down downtime right. or other situations. The jobs bank in, in, in intent was um, that that people, uh, hourly um, employees, uh, team members and Toyota speak, even though. GM yep. didn't use that term, and that's telling. But um, you know, the, the 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 potential was there to utilize uh, these people's experience and um, um, interest in in uh, doing other types of work. But the organization pretty much just let them sit in the cafeteria and drink coffee, which I think is, you know is such a waste of of, of human talent. Um, a lot of people there were were burned out and. Um, I understand, you know, why that was, but there were some people, and in in, in in some cases, we were able to tap into uh, their talents and motivations and have them get involved in some improvement work. Especially once sure. we got that new plant manager who um, was really encouraging that type of thing of of respecting workers, no longer blaming them um, for all the problems in the in the plant. So, no, I, I mean, I appreciate your your. Um, you're sort of counter to the idea of, I guess, roundabout way. I'm saying, well, we don't want to pay nurses to sit in the break room instead of going home. That organizations need to build um, the, 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 the capability to, to put their talents and time to use, right? Well, that's absolutely true. And I mean, when you think about it, if I've, if I've got four hours or two hours or even one hour of somebody's time, I have years of that person's expertise at my fingertips Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't I want to use that to make a difference in the business? And you have to, you know, if you go back to human behavior, I mean, people don't work just to make money. I mean, we make money so that we can make a living for our families and so on. And that's totally legitimate. People go to work to make a difference. Yeah. People want to people want to leave a legacy of improvement behind them. And so now we have an opportunity to engage, you know, instead of flexing, for example, to engage a bunch of people to leave this legacy of improvement. And yet, in some cases, we're not able to do that because, again, the organizations haven't reached the, that level of uh, of uh, lean maturity where they can see that as still a good idea. The other reason that that often doesn't work in, in uh, some of these organizations is because if they're already in a cost-cutting mode, Flexing is one of those things that help them, but also in the cost-cutting mode, what do you suppose is one of the first groups to get cost-cut? Well, of course, it's going to be, you know, their continuous improvement group or their organizational excellence group because they're often seen as kind of extra and redundant. And so now you've just maybe spent a number of years growing expertise in an OE group only to go and cut them when you need the most, which just seems so counterintuitive to me. You know, I was working with a, a small hospital, excuse me, out west uh, 
in the U.S. It, and it's part of a bigger chain, but it was just a small hospital, 235 bed and so on. It had a three-person lean team, and they were doing demonstrably good work with flow and quality inside the organization. Um, this hospital you know, ran into some financial difficulty, and all of a sudden, just like that, the entire lean team is gone. Yeah. Yeah. They just and showed up they just showed up on a Monday morning and all got their layoff notices, which was just stunning to me because the very people that the organization needed to help wade through the financial disturbance were the people that they were unloading. I couldn't believe it. And and there's there's a lot of that happening um these days, unfortunately. And but somebody said earlier though, you know, I think, you know, in, on one level an organization, whether it was GM or a hospital, would struggle to utilize people's talents when they have that slack time. Um, I think sometimes it, it seems like healthcare organizations and executives on a, on a different level uh, struggle to utilize their internal lean departments or, or whatever they call it. Um, and and you know, there's a there's probably a, a whole. Uh, complex fishbone diagram we could sketch out of of why that is um of uh you know do, do executives not believe in lean are they not getting results if they're not getting results why weren't you know why weren't they getting results um but it seems like you know maybe there's sort of this impatience or cost cutting um view but um before turning it back over to you you know you, you mentioned earlier and i jotted this down you know, organizations um, viewing staff cuts as a last resort. And a lot, of, a lot of times it seems like it's the first resort, even though, you know, the, the article about the layoffs might say, well, you know, we, we had no alternative or we were forced to lay people off. But it seems like, boy, that's often the first thing these organizations go to. Well, that's that's certainly, Mark, what it feels like. And, you know, I was reading an article, oh, gosh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. It's an older article now. It's from December of last year. But I jotted down a couple of notes from it, and in this article said that the healthcare sector had announced 38,145 job cuts in 2017, which is 124% more than the year previous. And you know that's just such a stunning number. And you know when you when you read some of the, you know as I've done and you've done, you read some of the headlines, and it's like, well, we were left with no alternative. Yeah. You know, I want to come back to the part of the reason they're left with no alternative is because they delayed so long in taking any kind of meaningful action that that is the only thing that they had left at their fingertips to do mm -hmm. at the last at the last minute. And, you know, it's very easy to sit back and uh, at that juncture and, and demonize the senior leadership team. Right. Because you could look at them and say, oh, my God, they're out of touch. They don't know what they're doing. They're not running their business. But, you know, I've been dealing with executive teams uh, for quite a long time now. And, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule. But for the most part, they are all very caring and concerned mm -hmm. and dedicated individuals that want to do the right thing. And yet when you read headlines like this, it's like, well, this isn't the right thing. So, so how did you even get there? But I look at that and I say, okay, to me, an executive who is, who is faced with cuts and has to make those cuts that's no different to me than a person who is lower down in the organization and making mistakes. It's a bad process. The reason the executives are not prepared to deal with this in a more effective way is the processes that they're using to either, you know, try and see the future, make the organization more flexible, develop uh, meaningful strategies. 
they're, they're bankrupt. They don't have good processes. And so as a result, they don't have a good product from those bankrupt processes, same as you would at the front line, right? And so, you know, rather than demonize the executives, I think we need to look at them and say, how do we help them first mm-hmm. come up with, with better processes so that they never get caught in this position again? Because, you know, I've, again, I've dealt with executives and, and some of them have even put their own, uh, their own health at risk being so uh, churned by having to make these types of decisions and you can't help but feel bad for them, but it, it truly is the result of bad process that's put them in this position. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're, they're part of a system and I mean, I, I try to be, I, I do my best to be understanding and you're giving me a good reminder of the, the need for that, of uh, respect for executives. Um, uh, you know, I, one one thing in general, um, I, I try to remind myself of in healthcare is you can't blame people for things they haven't been taught. Whether exactly. that's uh, doctors not knowing about processes, uh, or executives not knowing about other modern alternatives um, to cost cutting. Um, that's that's uh, I, I appreciate that reminder. Kind of step back and. Uh, understand the person and ask why and, and look at how the system contributed uh, to where they are. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, executive has played a very active role in, in their organization and, and its culture and its strategy for um, for a long period of time, which I think in a way, even if somebody were to, um, you know, uh, become magically uh, in, enlightened from hearing another healthcare executive <laughs> or a good coach like yourself, um, knowing what to do doesn't mean it's easy to, 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 to practice new habits either, especially when it comes, you know, to other cultural elements, you know, healthcare, a lot of people, um, you know, have been trying to shift healthcare away from uh, blaming individuals for systemic problems. That's, that's a hard habit to break as well. Well, certainly it is. And, and, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to blame the person than it is to take apart a process and try and fix it. I mean, it's just that much simpler. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, there's a couple of certainties in this world. And the reason I say that they're certainties, Mark, is because I live them in manufacturing and now we're living them again in healthcare. The first certainty is you cannot cut your way to success. There is no organization anywhere in the world ever that has cut its way to success. Right. The the best you can hope for if you are stuck with with uh, doing cuts is that you bought yourself some time to go and do the right thing. Mm, mm-hmm. The second certainty is you will not solve today's problems using yesterday's thinking. And so you're going to have to really look at your, your uh, business management model and say, is there something I should be doing differently? And if so, what might that be? And, and, you know, put yourself out there, go and educate yourself, go and talk to some organizations that do seem to be more successful than others and, and find out what they are doing because doing more, you know, that's that version of insanity, right? Doing more of what you've been doing and hoping for a better outcome just because you did cuts this time. That's it's uh, it's magical thinking at its worst. Well, that's, that's well said. And um, one other, and, and I appreciate, you know, you're very thoughtful, um, you know, responses to these um, situations and and, uh, and and topics. So one one other thing I'm I'm curious about um, you 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 live in Canada. You've done uh, work with organizations in many countries, but what, what, it's just looking at 
um, you know, the, the U.S. where I know you've worked and, and what's happening in Ontario or other provinces. Uh, how, how much do you see these same challenges in uh, in both countries or uh, how, is, it, is it more similar than different? How would you characterize what's going on around pressure to improve and how organizations respond to that pressure? Yeah, I, that's a great question, Mark, because, you know, living on both sides of the border, you hear you know, different versions of the same story. And having lived in healthcare on both sides, it's given me a bit of a different perspective, I think. Both countries, I think both countries are more similar than different uh, with the challenges certainly facing them. You know, they all have the same level of compassionate, dedicated individuals trying to do the right thing for the patient. They all suffer with the same quality issues, patient falls, pressure ulcers, surgical site infections, etc., They've got the same operational issues, highly variable and complicated processes, uh, some organization challenges of patient volumes and acuity changes and, and uh, some reimbursement changes. The only thing that's really different is, is, uh, is who's paying the bills. And I'll tell you why that's important. You know, in the U.S., and I know I've, I'm oversimplifying all of this, but in, in the U.S., if, you know, whether you're a hospital or a clinic or a PCP, it's fundamentally an independent business and you're reimbursed by insurance companies. And so you really have to look at it like a business in Canada and certainly Ontario where I am, but in Canada overall, healthcare is government run and that presents its own challenges Mm -hmm. because um, you know, if you're, if you're looking at, you know, South of the border where I'm running my healthcare as a business, then of course I'm going to look at all aspects of my business. I'm going to try and be efficient. I have to deliver high quality of service because if the patient doesn't like my service, they will go down the road to another clinic or hospital and they can do that, you know, within the confines of whatever their insurance policy says, of course, but they can certainly do that here in Canada. Healthcare is healthcare is healthcare. Yes. You can go from hospital to hospital, but the service is going to be basically exactly the same. And, when you have healthcare run by a government like it is, the problem that creates is now decisions on funding are politically motivated and not necessarily made on the basis of some kind of uh, uh, metrics analysis. And so a perfect example of that is here in Ontario, you know, where I live in Canada, our healthcare is, is, has been underfunded for years. But 2018, now this is election year, and magically, Mm, over mm -hmm. the last three months, we are seeing funding announcement after funding announcement after funding announcement for healthcare. And the the current ruling party would have you believe that these were all in the works all along, and it's just coincidence that they're showing up in in uh, election year. But certainly, that's you know, even the most gullible of us wouldn't believe that for a minute. The second piece of that is. An American healthcare institution, again, whether you're a hospital or a clinic or a PCP, if you if you embark upon improvement work, you get to reap the benefit of that improvement work. So you go in and you let's pretend you you follow some Toyota production system uh, coaching advice. Um, you take waste out of your system. You become more efficient. Your, qu- your quality improves. Your patient experience and flow improves. Whatever comes out of that from a monetary point of view, and there will be some without question. Uh, you get to keep that and reinvest that. Uh, Certainly here in Ontario, in Canada, it's not the same thing. If you have a hospital and you do a lot of efficiency improvement work, and let's say you come in $10 million under your budget for this year, 
you have to give that $10 million back to the government so that they can go and give it to somebody who didn't do any improvement so, work. So where, where is and the so, incentive then? Yeah. 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 So there's there's zero incentive in uh, Canada and certainly in Ontario, where most of my experience is, to do any kind of improvement work because you don't get to uh, keep it anyway. You have to give it back to the government so that they can uh, redistribute that. Now, in spite of that, there is a very, very tiny handful of brave CEOs who are saying, well, okay, it's more than just about the money. It's about patient care. It's about flow. It's about meeting the the demands of the community. And they're still embarking upon some lean. But, you know, the big incentive, the the ability to save money, to be able to reinvest it in new equipment and new facilities and so on, uh, it's totally missing up here where you do have that opportunity south of the border. So it seems like... uh... Boy, I mean, you know, t- tapping into uh, without that budget financial incentive or, or with that with that misincentive, um, it sounds like really no choice to try to tap into improvement being the right thing to do, or or at least you know looking at uh, you know making things better for their patients, creating a better workplace, the other motivations that people in healthcare hopefully have, right? Yeah, oh, for sure. And, and yeah. you know, like I mentioned, there's a handful of very key CEOs up here in Ontario who are, who are soldiering on. And, you know, certainly the the uh, organizations that I've been engaged with in the U.S., the healthcare organizations, they did not embark upon a Toyota production system transformational improvement for the money. They embarked upon it to improve patient flow to improve quality, to better serve the community, to find new ways of delivering health care. Um, that are going to be innovative. And of course, if you are doing those things, then the cost will come out of it if you're doing those yeah. things successfully. I mean, there's there's a reason, you know, Toyota, whenever you go to a Toyota facility, they always talk about things in terms of safety, quality, productivity, and cost. Mm-hmm. With the thinking being, if you do a good job at the first three, the bottom one, the cost one is a given. You're going yeah. to make money. You're going to be able to save money on it. So I, I just want to be clear that Although the markets are different, the the uh, the incentive for for organizations to take on this type of work, in my experience, both sides of the border has been the same. They want to do the right thing for the patient. Yeah, yeah, and that's one thing that's um, very powerful. Maybe as a, a final thought, you know, when people say, you know, patients are not cars, and the hospital is not a factory, I'm like, well, those are absolutely factually uh, correct statements, but. Um, you know, as you were saying earlier, tying it back to something you said, Andre, um, TPS and lean have, have been proven um, to, to transcend uh, culture and language. Uh, it, it can transcend um, industry. And so when people say you know, a hospital is not a factory, I mean, uh, people in, hospital have, in hospitals have this incredible um, sense of caring and professional dedication that well, I think you know, some, you know, in some settings and manufacturing environments, people have that. But I think it's it's that much stronger in healthcare, which I, I think is a great strength that effective improvement work and uh, you know should should tap into. I think that's the uh, the pro side. I know we're not debating is lean easier in healthcare than manufacturing. That's a silly debate. But one thing that's in our uh, advantage is. Um, you know, the, uh, the the level of caring and commitment that you find in healthcare. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, that's a very uh, emotionally invested uh, industry. 
Mm-hmm. You know, as you said, I mean, I'm a car person, so I love cars, right? But uh, you get into healthcare and you're working in healthcare, and that's a completely different emotional attachment, uh, without question. And and you know, all of us get frustrated. Even coaches sometimes get frustrated, and you ask yourself. You know, when you've had a particularly bad day or bad week and you say, you know, why am I trying to help? When I, whenever I feel like that, Mark, I take a walk through the emergency department of whatever facility I happen to be in at the time. And I walk through that facility and I see the old and the weak. I see the young people who've been struck down by sudden onset of illness or some kind of accident. Their lives perhaps changed forever. And then I realize how important this work that we're trying to do in healthcare actually is. Someday that could be somebody in our family. Someday that could be us. And there's nothing, there's no more noble calling in my imagination anyway than supporting grand change in the way we deliver healthcare. That's a very powerful thought um, to end things on. Um, I think that's well said and there's no, there's no topping that. Um, thank you for um, that reflection and, and, and a powerful reminder. Um, if, if people want to reach out, Andre, how do you suggest um, they find you either through LinkedIn or do you want to share an email address? Or Yeah, certainly you can reach me through LinkedIn. Um, you can uh, reach me at uh, my email address. It's Andre, A-N-D-R-E dot Demarchant, D-E-M-E-R-C-H-A-N-T at Leanway, L-E-A-N-W-A-Y dot org. And uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions anybody has or uh, just dialogue with them further about uh, any of the items from our podcast today. Well, great. And thank you for um, joining us here on the podcast. It's great to talk to you. Um, Enjoy the conversation. Glad we could record this and share it with others. Um, uh, Again, our guest here has been Andre Demarchant. Um, Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day. Thanks, Mark. The pleasure has been all mine. You have a great day as well. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.